Sorry for the crowding. We'll have our chapel finished eventually, the sanctuary, as you all know. We can go back into there. Um, before I start in with what our subjects are tonight, I want to know if there's any questions from last week. And if not, I'll go right to it. The chapters that we're dealing this week are really, in, in many ways, the sort of the whole heart of the whole issue, which is the, the balancing and complementary energies between male and female, which is what draws us together, and then ultimately what drives us apart. It's the most ironic sort of thing in the world. Swamiji says, um, people always think it would be a good thing to get married to someone that is just like them, but in many ways it would be a total disaster because if you marry somebody just like you, it increases the delusion that your way is the right way. <laughs> so sometimes you, you have someone who's quite sort of in harmony with your way of doing things, and sometimes you don't. And, you know, both kinds of marriages and relationships have their fine points. But above all, what marriage has to teach us is, is fundamentally the same is what we talk about when we're talking about education, educating children. In Kriyananda's book, Education for Life, he, he, gives a, he says the purpose of education is to bring children to a level of true maturity. And, of course, we're all children, really, compared to Divine Mother, so it's not inaccurate to say it's true for all of us. And then he defines true maturity as the ability to relate to realities other than one's own. And that is something that is just so marvelous to contemplate that we really have to say it again. True maturity is the ability to relate to realities other than one's own. Now, if you just write that sort of on your cuff or uh, like on the wallboard above your bed or someplace where you'll see it every day, and every time you have a conflict with anybody in your life, just stop and ask yourself if the origin of that is not simply that you were unable to relate to reality that was not the same reality as your own. And one of the great um, examples that all of us in Ananda have in, is the life of Swami Kriyananda. And one of the things what you see by his positive example is that he has an extraordinary capacity to relate to whatever reality you happen to be in. He just can come right into it. He even recently I was reading something that he wrote. Um, I don't know if it was in a place called Ananda or somewhere else, but he was talking about. Oh, I think it was just right in this book, and he was talking about how Yogananda related to people, and he had the ability to understand not only on a spiritual level, but also um, psychologically where people were, and he would offer them whatever it was that they were capable of understanding, but not more, and and just had the, um, the perfect sense of being able to sense what other people's realities are. Now, we have this very fundamental problem when we're in relationships that are, I'll speak male-female, because that's the most common relationship we're talking about. But where, but it's really true in relating to anyone. But, but you have this basic sort of um, balancing energy, which is the nicest way to call it. So Amaji says in here, which I simply love, which is that simple statement that for uh, men to call women terrible or women to call men terrible is like one side of a coin accusing the other of being made out of base metal, right? <laughs> Which is that we're, the differences appear exaggerated, but we're, it's sort of an indissolvable unity. And um, 
It's only because we get up so close to it that we begin to think there are these great differences. And yet at the same time, Swami emphasizes, and there's a very important point to emphasize, the reason we marry is because the ultimate need of each of our souls is to become perfectly balanced. And the balance can be described as male-female, but more truly it's the balance between reason and feeling. And Swami, the two chapters we deal with, the first is reason and feeling, and the second is intuition. And intuition is that perfect circulating, he says, between the heart and the, and the head. And so that all thought, all experiences, and all understanding, and all decision-making circulates between the heart and the mind until you hit that balance point, which is called intuition. And the way God has made us, we tend to sort of explore one side or the other based upon the gender of our bodies, generally speaking, until we get comfortable enough and then we begin to learn the other side. Now, of course, it's not always true that the gender of your body determines who you are. But as Swamiji said, it almost always has a strong influence. And if you deny that influence, as it has become popular these days to deny it, he said it gains more power because it has the power of denial. It has the power of being a secret. It has the power of you're not actually relating to what's right in front of you. So it's, it's very much more comfortable to just assume that there was some cosmic wisdom in the body you chose and that whatever the lesson is, you have to relate to it one way or another. And if you do relate to it, you're just more likely to sort of be working in the flow of karma as it was given to you. Um, Swami himself, there, you know, notes certain exceptions. I often tell these stories about Shivani, who, um, of course, has been in Assisi for the last 12 years, so most of you don't know her unless you visited her there. But she is a very powerful woman, extremely powerful woman, and not very feminine in her nature. Uh, she's, she's married and has been for 25 years and is very happily married. But I remember many years ago when we both lived in Ananda village, I found her wandering around in Ananda's market just sort of in the afternoon. And I sort of said, what are you doing? She says, she, she, was sort of, she just had this sort of look on her face. She says, I'm trying to remember what you fix for dinner. <laughs> it was just sort of like, I need to feed him. Let me see if I can sort of tune in enough and figure out how I'm supposed to do this. We were going once, Swami was giving a class called um, How to Work with Your Emotions. And I met Shivani as we were both going in, and Shivani said, Oh, I'm so looking forward to this class. Yesterday, I think I had one. <laughs> and, you know, and of course, she's really um, just a lovely lady, but nonetheless, that's her nature. Years ago, I'll tell one more story because I love to tell stories on Shivani. Years ago, at the height of the sort of feminist energy, which Swami speaks against in this book a little bit, the sort of um, outwardly directed effort to sort of make things right by outward action. Um, Swamiji was part of a, a big program in Vancouver, Canada, Unity and Diversity program that they used to have around a lot, and there were a lot of different speakers on the platform. But they were all men, because as it happened, there was no the level of uh, speakers that they invited, there was no female equivalent or the ones that they had invited hadn't come. I don't know which it was. So the, the um, producers of the program were coming under a lot of flack because it was all men up there. Of course, you know, the men they were up there were no more male than female. They were just wonderfully balanced people. So the whole thing was ridiculous, which is how Swami felt about it. But they knew that Shivani is a very powerful speaker and, and experienced. So the organizers essentially came to Swami's room where Shivani and others were 
and, and told them about the dilemma, which somebody was not very sympathetic to anyway. And, and then they said, well, what about Shivani? Maybe she could go and speak, and then we'd have a woman representing the cause. And Swami just looked, very simply, just looked at and said, Shivani's not a woman. <laughs> and that was sort of about all the answer he would give. You know, of course not. She can't, she couldn't fill that role. She's not a woman. And he was answering more true than they were thinking. You know, what they were really saying is they, I mean, they want a program that's well-balanced and feminine and masculine energy, but they had it. The mere fact that the voices were coming out of male bodies didn't really make any difference, and putting Shivani up there would not have balanced it more toward the female. It would have just made another male, uh, more male energy than Swami's, really. Uh, and so it's important when we deal with this, especially nowadays, that we all stop reacting. Last, um, because as long as we're reacting, we're just um, making for ourselves nothing but unhappiness. You know, it's just absolutely necessary that we deal with the lives that we're living and the situation we're, we're in as they really are. And I don't mean that means all of a sudden all women have to become little housewives, you know, and all men have to become big breadwinners or anything like that. I'm just saying let's stop reacting and let's just start dealing with the situations as they really are because that will just give it, um, just give us much more possibility of coming to something that's true. Um, so much of what is happening now between men and women, as I said last week, which is very important to remember, is just all influenced by external external forces. And, and those of us who are looking for new models of relationships, and that's a, a lot of what I was speaking of last week, we really have to think of this in terms of not what is the world doing, not what is society telling me, but what is it that's really right for me? What am I really doing here? And where am I really trying to go? Um, I know years ago when Michael Toms, who was the, was the head or is the head of New Dimensions Foundation, and he used to do a radio program on uh, public radio on Saturday nights. And over the course of the years that he did this, I mean, this was from starting 25 years ago. I think the program may still be on. I think his wife may do it now, or he may still. But in any case, all of the sort of uh, New Age thinkers, everybody who was creating the revolution in consciousness was on his program sooner or later. And one time, during that period of time, Time magazine finally featured some of the thought that he was having on the radio. And he remarked the next night, on the next program he had, he said, isn't it wonderful, Time magazine, you know, hear it on New Dimensions tonight and read about it in Time magazine five years from now. <laughs> but then he made a very interesting comment. He said, you know, if we're only five years ahead of Time magazine, we need to step up our speed and our energy a little bit. <laughs> And in that same context, um, you know, Swami Kriyananda has written all this music and all these books, and every time he does, we put out this big energy to think, you know, this is the one that's really going to capture the public imagination, and they're all just um, enormously ignored. Just, you know, they just have this marvelous non-impact on the world around us. Uh, when you count it all up, he literally has sold millions of entities, you know, of books and tapes and records because he's so prolific. So he's sold millions of things, but not millions of any one thing. He's just done so many. But in many ways, it's like if he ever becomes popular, I think we have to get nervous. Because a man such as him and Yogananda and others need to be way ahead of their time because they're setting a tone that, that the whole of civilization is going to move into over a long cycle. Look at the, what happened for Jesus. It was 300 years 
before it wasn't life-threatening to be a Christian, you know. And then gradually it it, it shifted over. But Yogananda's mission, too, it's just like a few people know, but very few. But uh, according to what he himself said, which I believe to be true, time will gradually show that, you know, his is the watershed incarnation and there will be a complete shift in our in our planet's consciousness. And I think Swami Kriyananda plays the same role in that. But it's way out ahead of its time. And all of us, all of you, who are drawn to this new way of thinking, in California we have the impression that there's more of us than there actually are, you know. But even in California we're still very few. But we have to be very, very conscious because the culture around us has a tendency to hypnotize us with its thinking. And this whole male-female battle that has developed over time. I mean, I was in Long's drugstore, just, you know, buying some insignificant object. And as happens in stores, somebody needed a price, somebody was looking for it, and, you know, everything was kind of like delayed and we're all waiting. And there were some men who were clerks who were running around doing things. One of the women who was waiting with me just turned to me and said, you know, just said like Swami says in his book, men, you know, they're the cause of all the trouble. And I just thought, my, that's a rather sweeping generalization. (laughs) But she just turned to me as if I would say, yeah, yeah. And I thought to myself, what a sick situation we're getting ourselves into. And I know there's a, um, a tremendous inclination, you know, for people to become embittered because we have bad experiences with individuals. And there's this tremendous movement among women to fight for their position. Um, I, I went through, I've, I've been married twice, and in my first marriage, um, I, did, I made a mistake um, that really wasn't bad for me, ultimately, but it was bad for the marriage, which is I was actually looking for a guru, and I became a disciple of my husband. And even though he was a very, was and is a very fine person, he was not wise enough to have me devote myself to him in that way. And nobody who knew me before or after can ever believe what I was actually like in the middle. <laughs> but I was. I was. And the people who knew me then, when they heard about the life I took up later, especially this very prominent public role, they could not believe it. Because during the five years that I was married to him, I hardly ever talked. I know it sounds incredible. <laughs> when I tell my husband, he gets, when I tell David, he gets this longing look in his eye. <laughs> Oh, why couldn't I have met you then, you know? (laughs) But I didn't, because I I just, I was subservient. Um, Oh, goodness, my mind, I keep losing my thought, and I have to go back and figure out what I meant to say about that. Uh, mm. But as a result of that, what happened was, I really did feel that I got really way out of balance. So when I married the second time, which was ten years after the first marriage broke up, and I had a long, solitary, happy, single life in between, Um, I married very defensively because I was determined not to um, lose track of myself again, right? And so I, for, for a very long time, I didn't even know it. And after, in my, as I mentioned last week, in my dear David's inimitable fashion, after a year or two, David just sort of very sweetly said to me, you know, I'm not against you. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> I didn't even know. 
And he just, he just repeated again, I'm not against you. And I had to just stand way back from that and just sort of see what all of this acculturation had done to me. That I was no longer even able to relate in the moment to what was actually happening, but I was relating from this whole picture of all the things that might have happened or could have happened. Now, fortunately, I have a certain strength of character, and so does he. And, you know, we were able to turn from that. But there's this, again, what I'm trying to say is, every individual, male or female, really needs to stand within themselves and not say, what are you doing to me? What is happening in this relationship? And that's what I was trying to say last week. Relationships do not exist. All that actually exists is you and your own soul trying to find your way. And some context or another, whether it's as a single person in a family, as a married person, you're just yourself and your soul trying to find your way. And the goal of your soul nature is to become perfectly balanced, perfectly um, calm, centered, loving, kind, and a perfect balance of male and female. Whichever side you're starting on, you're going to have to come to the whole thing sooner or later, whether you do it by constantly alternating bodies or whether you do it just right where you stand, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, you need to be in a physical body, whatever gender, and be capable of being whatever is needed. When Yogananda was alive, he was so androgynous, they said, that people literally could not tell. He tells a story of going to dinner at a, 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 a home where there was a child of ten, and children, of course, being so direct and not at all inhibited by anything, that this child sort of got up from their place at the dinner table. It was a girl. She kept moving closer and closer to him. And finally she was standing real close and she looked right at him. She said, are you a man or are you a woman? Because she was just picking up energy and she couldn't tell. He just said, neither. (laughs) Because he really wasn't. What would make him? He was in a male body, but he was no more male than female. He had access to whatever was needed. You see, and that's what it is that we're looking for. We need to be able to access whatever is needed. Recently, I was talking to a friend, and she said to me, I don't like to fight, which is a very natural thing to say. I like harmony. I don't like to fight. And I thought, well, that's a nice statement, except sometimes you have to fight. And if you have this opinion that I don't like to, or I don't like to have to sort of reason too much, or I don't like to have to consider my feelings, you can't have any preferences. Because then whenever a reality comes to you that demands that aspect, you're going to be crippled. You're not going to be able to relate to it. And you're going to do inappropriate things because you don't have all the tools that you need. What we need is to be able to be whatever God needs us to be. I had an experience, and this is only about anger, but a friend of mine has a very um, fiery nature. And uh, she just really likes a good argument every once in a while. She sort of needs a good argument every once in a while. It's the way she is. And once uh, we were working on a project together, and we were all under a lot of stress, and she just began to fight. And um, earlier in my life, I didn't like to fight, and I wouldn't have been able to do it. But she began to fight, and I could have been very, Now, dear, it's not very spiritual to be like that. But I thought, you know, she just needs to fight. So I started yelling at her. She yelled at me. I yelled a little louder. She yelled a little louder. We both yelled together for a couple of minutes. We were in a very public place. Everybody else was like, <gasps> like that. But it was like I was perfectly calm. It was just, you know, my friend needed me to yell with her for a few minutes. 
because that was just where she was at and what was required. And after and after we'd both yelled together for a couple of minutes, then she just simmered down and everything just went on. I mean, you might say it would have been better if she didn't need it, but she did. And afterwards I thought to myself, I was so proud of myself. <laughs> you know, I really was. Because I had just been able to say, let me just relate to what's happening for her and just let me do it. Okay? Now, when we're, when we're in the, the male-female energy, you know, there's this tremendous ten- tendency all the time for things to polarize. It's just, it, it's like the attraction creates polarity. It's the same thing. I love the books, you know, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. In my opinion, they're very badly written. You know, I wish somebody with a good editor would get a hold of them because there's parts of them that are so true, but you have to wade through so much verbiage to get to them. But just my favorite in all those books is the one about keeping score. And I don't know if any of you will remember it, but I'll repeat it to you. Keeping score, it talks about how women and men keep score so differently. Men keep score in a very reasonable manner. They think, you know, I go to work every day, I provide a good living, you know I'm sending the kids to private school, we've bought the house that she wants, we're going on a vacation next year, I have our retirement planned, you know, I'm really nice to her in-laws, and he makes this big list, and he thinks he has about 990 points, right? Because men sort of weigh things in, in like big terms, like what they actually look like. For women, everything is one. The house is one, the private schools are one, if he remembers my birthday, that's one, right? <laughs> so every time the man thinks he has money and credit in the bank that he can just kind of be casual about, he forgets her birthday. She wants to divorce him. It's just zero. It's all gone to zero. <laughs> like that. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it's true for me. I, I can actually remember just getting so upset on Valentine's Day, just beyond, beyond. I mean, I, I was amazed myself. It was the third or fourth Valentine's Day in a row, I admit, but nonetheless. <laughs> but just it was just like I watched myself just get so out of proportion because of this sort of uh, inclination of the female nature to go with the feeling of things. So I'm sitting in the moment, and I feel terrible. And, and the inclination of the male energy is to reason it out. Well, yeah, you feel terrible, but it was just a rose or a, a bracelet or a box of candy. You know, think about everything else that's happening. And so he, like, detaches from his feelings, thinks about everything, just can't understand why you're so upset. You know, you, the female... The more he reasons, the more upset you feel because he's bringing you all this information which is so profoundly irrelevant to what you're feeling. (laughs) But nobody's, nobody's wrong because you're, you're both, you both just really have half of the situation. You're both wrong and you're both right. And what happens is we become immature. We lose the capacity to really see it from the other person's point of view. Remember what David said to me? Everything is fine and then you get upset, right? But that's really is sort of like it. Everything is fine in the sense that every single person in the world thinks that their way is just the way it is. I, I, I just sort of, it's only very slowly, much more slowly than I am proud to admit, that I have actually really understood that people are different than me. You know? I, I mean, this this is a story on myself which... It's a very rueful story on myself, those of you who've lived with me all these years. I had the realization one day that on very deep levels, I was really shocked 
when I expressed my opinion and people kept on talking about the subject. <laughs> it was just sort of like, I think it's this habit of absolute rule, you know, which we've all had, like being queens or pharaohs or popes or whatever we were, where we would just simply say, but this is the way I want it to be. <laughs> and then, of course, everything would cease and all the minions would run around to make it happen. And yet, I observe that people would keep talking and keep actually having other ideas. And, and I mean, of course, I'd learned to be relatively gracious about it, but I, I could feel suddenly one day, on this deep subconscious level, I was confused. I just couldn't understand it. You know, and it, it's, I mean, it's ridiculously self-evident, just ridiculously self-evident. But a tremendous amount of time, especially between men and women, especially between people who are close to each other, whether you're male or female or what you are, you just get so accustomed to the familiarity of it. Rick actually said to me once, you treat other people like an extension of your own mind. And the trouble is, they usually aren't. They have this really unfortunate habit of imagining themselves as separate from you. And even more than that, generally speaking, they're not thinking what you're thinking. You know, and, and, and if we could just, uh, I remember once I was talking about something with Swamiji and, uh, he was describing to me something he said to somebody. And I don't even remember the details of it, but he just sort of quickly said, and so I told her so and so. He said, but that's not really what I said, because that sounds accusatory is the word he used. And then just Swami said, and I'm never accusatory. Now, accusatory is a very interesting word. You know, you accuse somebody of something. You make them feel all of a sudden when you first bring it up, like you're, you know, they've done something wrong, and you think you're just having a conversation. But just Swami's simple statement, I am never accusatory. And so you never start with the assumption that there's something wrong with what they're doing. You start with the simple assumption of, gosh, I wonder what you're doing. You know, I wonder what it feels like to be you. I had a very interesting experience with David once where um, uh, I was after him to, become, be, to be different on some particular point, and he was not cooperating. And uh, <laughs> we started a, 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 a disagreement that lasted for months. And uh, I'm sure those of you who, who have lived with someone for a long time understand how this can happen. You're not really fighting. Um, but you're, there's just like this undercurrent, and, and you're just always about a step away from just being really in disharmony. And so that went on, and it went on for, for many months. And, you know, David is uh, more than my match. He just, you know, he will not give in to my uh, will, period. So he just quietly and steadily just resisted me. Right. And I knew that um, verbalization was futile, so the house went very, very quiet. And it was just sitting there, you know, it was just going like that for a long time. And so we were finally off on a holiday somewhere. And I thought, you know, something, we have to break this. So I started interviewing him like I was a journalist, you know, just like, you know, I'm going to find out what is happening. So I started asking him exceedingly impartial questions just to get a picture of what was going on. And I sort of asked him, you know, do you have any idea what it is that um, your wife is trying to get you to do? Oh, yes, he said. <laughs> well, then, she said, as calmly and as quietly as possible, why don't you do it? <laughs> but his answer was classic. He says, it's not my priority. He said, I'm working on other things. 
He said, you know, I, I, there were even questions between. Do you agree that it would be a good idea? Yes. Do you think you would be a better person for doing what I want? <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, yes. Why don't you do it? Well, I said, I'm working on other things. It's not my priority right now. Now, that was such a clear and straightforward, honest answer. And I thought of all the things that anybody can say to you. You know, you're too fat, you're too lazy, you're too noisy, you're too this, you're too that. But boy, you don't want somebody coming up and making the list for you of how you're supposed to run your life. I think how just upsetting that is. And how more profoundly upsetting it is, the more true it is. You know, we all have like, we can only do so much. And and maybe your idea of this person's priority should be X, but that doesn't necessarily take into account at all. You know, their perception, their abilities, their intuition. It, all it takes into account is that I would be more comfortable if you were different. Oh, now the person you're saying that to just might have enough sense to see that we're not really talking about what's good for me. We're talking about what you want. You know, there's a clue there, right? But ever since then, it's just helped me so much to think how many times in my life people want me to do something that, that I'm perfectly willing to agree is good for me, but I, I just know the number's not up. You know, the karmic forces have just not gathered to give me the strength to go over that one. And they will someday, I, much to my first husband's amusement and dismay. As soon as I left him, I changed in all the ways he'd been trying to get me to change all those years. <laughs> But, you know, I'd gradually hardened my resistance to him by the end. But he was right. It's just that I wasn't inspired by his his will. But I was inspired by truth eventually. But the more we push on people and try to get them to do it our way, it's not a reasonable solution. That's when feeling becomes emotion and we become divided from one another. You know, the, the, the point about intuition is that it's unifying. The very nature of intuition is that intuition comes from the level where all the separate pieces come together. And, and the, even the power to have intuition is based to a great extent on the belief that there is a point where solutions exist. So Amikriyananda always tells us that you know, it, the level of superconsciousness is the level where all the seeming differences come back together into unity. I mean, this whole manifested world is just an apparent separation of of one divine force. It's like the fingers on your hand look very separate, but they really come from the same source. We live in the fingertips, and we look across, across these chasms of difference. When you go deep into your inner nature, you, you come to the point where everything comes back together. And from that unified place, then you know how to how to express that unity in all this apparent separation. That's what intuition actually is. And that's why you can become intuitive suddenly and you just see how things come together. Now, Swamiji has taught us that one of the most powerful ways to be intuitive is to always believe that there's a unifying situation, a unifying solution. He calls it being solution-oriented. Many times, I can't countless times over the years, we've brought problems and situations to Swamiji that not, nobody can solve. And we're, so, we're smart people you know, but we just can't think of an answer. And he'll just suggest something so obvious that was not obvious to anyone. It's just, it's always startling. But he says he, he puts his mind at the spiritual eye and he, and he knows there's a solution. And as soon as he assumes the unity, then all of a sudden the unity is there. Now, what we so often do 
in our relationships with each other is that we assume the separation. And, and we, and as soon as there's any little conflict and somebody's not nice to us or isn't, you know, just exactly what we thought or does something that we, wasn't what we wanted and we get all upset like that, boom, we just go right like this. And we start, you know, like, this person can't be trusted. He's not really what I want him to be. She's not really going to work out. It's not going to, you know, just all this stuff. Bingo, we separate. And as soon as you separate and start seeing each other as other, you lose the capacity to go back to superconsciousness and see how it comes together again. I mean, it's it's more than just emotions. It's more than all of the psychological words. It's really metaphysically, you make it impossible to find the answer because you lose you lose hope of it. I mean, that's why marriage, lifelong commitment, with a real sense that I'm going to work this out, in and of itself, often makes it possible to work it out. Because you're just there, and you basically know we are going to be here, so there has to be a way for this to work out. When you when you have the option in your mind that you can separate, then often you fall into the point of separation, and then you can't find an answer. You know, several times over the course of the almost 20 years now that I've lived with David, we've hit, not for long, but we've hit what I recognize as the divorce point. I can feel it. I can feel that this is the kind of crossroads where people can separate. And I'm not meaning to give you a, a darker impression of our relationship, but you know, there's a kind of vibration that can set in where you could just see, if we continue down this road, we'll just get more and more separated. Of course, we have no intention of doing so. So we we go back to the road that brings us back together. And over the course of many years, you know, we just get better and better at being together. You hit those points and you figure out how to get past them. But the, the, the simple realization that we can't separate, because and not because we're so dogmatic about divorce, but just because we can't separate. It's not, it's not there to happen. So we know there has to be a way to come back together. And, and so you just start looking about how do we get back together, not how do I sort of protect myself and get away. Now, you have to have fundamentals in your relationship to make that work, but many people do. My, the mother, my, my in-laws for my first husband, who, who were people I was very close to, I really loved them. Eleanor said to me once, because when I met Harold and Eleanor Savage was their name, they just had a wonderful relationship. But she was 18 when she married him and he was 32. So they'd had, you know, at that time it was a bit of a, a big age gap and so on. And Eleanor said to me, because they had a wonderful relationship when I knew them. They were married about 65 years by the end. But Eleanor said to me, when I commented once about it, oh yeah, she said, the first 28 years were hell. <laughs> it's quite a statement, isn't it? Yeah. But the last, whatever, 32... <laughs> We're fabulous. <laughs> but she just said that. But And she said, we tried to separate several times, but at the time and place with the children and all, and because they really loved each other and because they really belonged together, they just couldn't. So they would try and they couldn't. So then they just have to come back together and just have to do it again. And then in that way, you would find ways to become mature enough to take in somebody else's reality. I mean, few of us, and sometimes sometimes you really do get paired up with someone who really is impossible. I mean, it does happen. It happens many times. Or you, you get paired up with someone, and because everything's so accelerated in our age, you just, you know, you start together and then you just move apart. So I know it does happen. But many, many times, many times, people separate for no reason at all. 
except that they've just reached the point where it's hard <laughs> because it's hard. It's not that marriage is hard. Marriage is not particularly any harder than anything else. Life is hard. You know, to be happy from the beginning to the end of your life with integrity and not merely to be happy because you've just given up. I mean, people can be happy because they've just lowered their expectations and lowered their energy to such a level that they're, they're, they say they're happy because they're just not feeling much of anything. They're happy as a clam, you know, <laughs> whose, capacity, <laughs> whose capacity is not really very big. <laughs> but life is hard. It's very hard to stay awake. It's very hard to have integrity. It's very hard to take responsibility. It's very hard to keep growing. And when you're, you know, really close with someone and they're the ones who are always giving you the impression that they're hurting you because they're the ones who are always exposing your own limitations to you. It's just really easy to blame them. You know, it's a no-brainer. I'm near you. I hurt. It must be your fault. There was a, a, a woman that I, a woman that I knew once who, who put this very well. Um, she said, uh, and, and this is about, she was speaking in terms of a man who was very psychologically unaware, but it really can apply spiritually also. She said uh, he was unaware, he was unconscious of the level from which his pain came. And therefore, when he was with this particular woman and she would say things and he would hurt, it would hurt him, he would naturally think that it was she who was causing his pain. Right. Now, in that context, she was talking about a man who had a very difficult background, who wasn't willing to really look at himself. But I was realizing how very true that is spiritually. You know, all of our pain always comes because on some level or another, we're looking to the outer world to fulfill us in ways it never can. You know, it just never can. It, I, there's the strangest thought that I've come to, which sounds so cynical when I say it that I don't even... I. I I don't even know how to say it, but I will, just so that you can try to get you to understand it. When I finally just stopped expecting anything from David, we started just having such a good marriage, you know? I just really stopped thinking that anything he did was related to whether I was happy or not. You know, he's a wonderful person. He's just a wonderful person, noble and kind and just everything that I would want. And you know, he has his personality and I have mine. And and every time, as soon as I stopped thinking that when I suffered it was his fault, even if he had said it and I had heard from it, it just everything started getting so much easier. It's like whenever I suffer, it's my fault. You know, I'm one with the infinite. That doesn't mean you never respond appropriately. Don't misunderstand me. You know, sometimes you have to say that really doesn't work for me. You know, it just really, really doesn't work for me. But when you say something like that without there being any accusatory note in it, right, it just becomes a conversation. The difference between a conversation and a fight is just, you know, just a tiny little bit, tiny, tiny little bit. Because you do have to be healthy, but you have to be, you have to be spiritually healthy, spiritually true. And this, and, and what we're talking about today is this reason feeling opposition where women are so tend to be so committed to the feeling level of things. And you have to also understand, as I was saying last week, just as we, as we who are born in female bodies generally did so because we wanted to experience this thing called feelings, so those who were born in male bodies were born in male bodies because they didn't really want to. That really wasn't what they came to do. It's not their priority. Right? 
or it's not their first response. And yes, of course, everybody has to become balanced, but they have to get balanced from their own direction. I'm going to say this also, and you have to understand this correctly. Swami Kriyananda wrote a book. When he was writing the book's secret series, um, Danny Levin was selling those books, and Danny was, we were really trying to, you know, get the publishing company going, and Danny said, look, you know, all this business, secrets of friendship, success, fine. All these books are bought by women. What you want is secrets for women. That's the one that'll sell. Swami's first response was, I can't write such a book. He just went piffle like that. But very often, he said, whenever he says, I can't do that, just almost immediately after he knows just how to do it. It's sort of like the relaxation, he gets the inspiration. He said he woke up the next morning, and for four days, he just concentrated, he wrote the book Secrets for Women, which is a very good book. He said during that time, he just became entirely female in his consciousness. And people tried to ask him questions and have him make decisions. He said he couldn't because his, his, his orientation had become so female that he couldn't apply the kind of masculine energy he would normally apply. And he just had to say, you'll have to call me after this is over. <laughs> and then he finished it and you know, he put it aside and then he went on with his life. But he said to a lot of us, now again, you have to understand, these are you, this is yours of friendship and we understand what he said. And he came over to many of us women and he said, you know, for those four days I was just completely immersed in the feminine consciousness. It was terrible. <laughs> he said, all this emotion just roiling around all the time. He sort of said, how do you stand it? <laughs> but it was very, um, it was just very interesting to have him say that. Because on one level, really, how do we stand it? And, and so much of the time, the female effort is to suck the man into it. And most men would just basically look at you and say, are you crazy? Why would I go there? You know, why would I go there? Now, we're not talking about calm feeling. And you have to understand, Swami makes a great distinction. And he talks about calm reason and calm feeling. Calm feeling is very different than emotion. And calm feeling is very attractive. And often what a woman wants out of the man is calm feeling. But what she tries to use to get it out of him is emotion, right? And all he looks at and just says, "I'm not going there," because it's it's not where he it's not what he was born to do. And often the man tries to give to the woman, you know, this cold reason, and the woman says, "I'm not going there. Why would I go there? You know, what a dull, icky place to go to." <laughs> you know, it's it's very reasonable. When you think about it. But what we both have to come to is the woman has to come to calm feeling, the man has to come to calm reason, and then you both have something to say to each other. And when you're, when you're not there, you have no hope. You know, it's just it's a stalemate. When you hit those stalemates, the best thing to do is just go to the movies. Just, you know, just do something else. Because <laughs> you won't get anywhere. I remember what I was going to say. Remember a long time ago when I just stood here and I couldn't get it? I don't remember the second thing I forgot, but I remember the first thing I forgot. First thing I forgot, um, months ago when we were um, first started these series based on Swamiji's book, we gave a class series, we had a class series on uh, Hindu Way of Awakening, which many of you were part of. And the Hindu Way of Awakening book that Swamiji wrote um, it, was the, it has a subtitle I don't recall, but there was a lot in it about 
the archetype, the, the classic symbols, superconscious symbols, which are representative of the universe. Everything in the universe is, du- is dual, and the most fundamental duality is the masculine-feminine duality. So many of the, of the deities, in fact, all of the deities, all have a, 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 an inward and an outward, a masculine and a feminine aspect. You know, and generally it's presented in the simplest possible way. You have the male and you have the female. And the goddesses and the gods are all in pairs. We, and then, then there's uh, countless other ways through that book in which the basic duality of the universe is described, often in the compl- complements of male and female reason and feeling, all of these different uh, things. And we just went through this for a long time. We had a very interesting and challenging time. Then there's the last, one of the last chapters in the book, it was about Divine Mother. And then Swamiji took the opportunity to speak in fairly strong words of what he thinks of this angry sort of feminism that has, has sort of become popular. And he says a few very um, politically incorrect things, uh, forcefully. And, and most people in the class just took it in stride. But I had a few women who just couldn't stand it. They really couldn't stand it. And all of a sudden, you know, we're not, we are not discussing. We are combating the whole thing like this. And after sort of like struggling for a while to get the point across, I said, look, when it was Parvati and Shiva, you were taking it fine. Now that we're saying man and woman, you're all uptight, there's nothing different about it. It's the same thing. And so it, with us, we need to really, especially if we have a strong like gender identification or gender reaction, we need to make it very impersonal, you know, just very impersonal, and just really see it as these cosmic forces that are just seeking to balance. I, I mean, not everyone can, like in the middle of an intense marital argument, can start talking about Parvati and Shiva. It doesn't always work, <laughs> you know. We have actually a... a <laughs> at uh, at Ananda, we uh, we have a, a phrase that's called "true but irrelevant spiritual advice." You know, there's a moment when people will just give you advice that's so true and so wrong for the moment. You know, thank you very much for telling me, but would you never say that to me again? You know, it just is not the right time. So it's not everyone who can just like shift to Parvati and Shiva, but when when you're thinking about it in yourself. What you really want to think about is, you know, am I really in balance? Is what we're both seeking together. Here we are, we've polarized ourselves. Where is the truth in all of this? You know, where am I off and where is he off? Where, where can we find the position from which truth can shine on us again? And, and although there's a, a lot of people who say you really need to express what you feel and the more hot you are, the more you have to express it, it's usually a disaster for a relationship. Because you can say things that you really don't mean at all. And elsewhere in this book, Swamiji will talk about just, you know, if what you say when you're out of your mind is really not something you want to stand by. But if you have a, a, a good way with words, um, you can just destroy everything when you're out of your mind. And, and that, But that doesn't mean that when you cool off, you won't still say the same thing. Because, in fact, it may still be true. I remember my father speaking once of some woman who got very upset about something. And I asked the next morning, I said, well, has she um, changed? He said, well, she's sort of like a hard-boiled egg. She's not steaming anymore, but she's really fixed in her position. (laughs) He wasn't talking about my mother. He was talking about a neighbor at the time. 
But but sometimes, in fact, you do stop steaming, but you do realize that it's true and you have to say it. But nonetheless, what you say when you're not steaming is very different than what you say when you are. So so you sort of have to begin to recognize in yourself, I um, I, I begin to realize my, uh, you know, I, I could just... I could just hear a certain tone in my voice in which I began to sound like one of the chipmunks. It wasn't really subtle, you know, and my words would get really, really fast. And I just got so that I knew it didn't matter what the content was. As soon as that vibration was in my voice, I should shut my mouth. And because whatever I was about to say after that did not represent anything I wanted to stand by, you know, and... For men, it's probably just the opposite, but as soon as there's that kind of, you know, stony, not-on-your-life-honey kind of feeling, you, you can also just know that you're wrong because you've moved into cold reason instead of calm reason, right? And, and if we can just become very impersonal about ourselves, now, it's not likely that we can be each other's policemen. Generally speaking, that's not really helpful. Swami said it in a simple way. He said, marriage is simply too close for one or the other to be the other's teacher. You know, it just, it just doesn't work. But if we can be a policeman of our own selves and just say, whenever I'm in this state of mind, I'm wrong. Because it's not possible in this state of mind that I actually can perceive what's happening. And, and very often the best thing to do at that point is to shift the conversation from whatever you're arguing about into... How can we both get back to where we're trying to be? You know, how can, how can I and my reasonableness get back in touch with the feeling issues that you're raising? How can you and your over-emotionalism get back in touch with some objective uh, facts about what's going on? Let us become mature enough to relate to each other's reality. And of course, believe me, I know this is not easy. But this is the project. The project is not having the strength to stand up for myself and tell you what I really want and demand my needs. That project is the divorce project. That one works really well. But the marriage project is a very different project. The marriage project is I will become perfectly balanced in myself and anytime something happens that takes me off balance, my goal is to get on balance, not to use my off balance to push on you. You know, It sounds so simple, and believe me, I know it's not easy. But it is very simple. And we can work our way to it, because what else do we have to do? You know, otherwise we just suffer more. We think we're going to suffer less. There's this illusion that if I just keep going the way I'm oriented, somehow or another it's finally going to work. I've always, I've noticed that when we're off balance, we always try to do more of what is off balance. You know, we all have a default setting that we just fall into. You know, I become extremely articulate. <laughs> Because I just have this illusion that if I just explain it perfectly, then the whole world will do it my way. And I can just, again, it's one of those, the chipmunk voice and this extreme, extremely articulate thing that just, it, you can't possibly disagree with me. You must just not understand me. That's my philosophy. <laughs> but they understand me perfectly. They just don't want to do it, right? But everybody has a default setting. And when you sort of figure out what your default is, instead of going more and more there, just realize, just pull back a little. You know, just get more between these two. I remember the second thing I forgot. That is. But let's take a break first, and then I'll give it to you. (laughs) I won't. (laughs)
And uh, when he was in America, they had sort of an early birthday for him at Ananda Village at the end of April, but this is his actual birthday. And the holidays of a great spiritual people and the anniversaries of their deaths are everything like Christmas and Easter and Yogananda's birthday and so on are all occasions in which divine vibrations concentrate. And Kriyananda has been a very um, important force in the founding of Ananda and a very important channel for all of us of Yogananda's consciousness. So it's lovely to come together on his birthday. We don't actually have it in our calendar because we thought he was going to be in America and all the energy would be at the village, but he changed his plans. So on Saturday night at 7.30, we're going to have a, a gathering in our sanctuary here. I guess that's why we have to come and clean it up also. And we'll have a lot of music and stories and beautiful pictures of Swamiji. And it'll, just a very, it'll be a very nice night. It always is. So if you would like to come, it's free. And you'll learn, a, you'll learn a little bit about Swamiji and also just sort of get in tune with his energy. How long would that last? Oh, two hours at the most. Maybe, maybe over sooner, but the maximum two hours. We, never usually, we usually never keep people there more than that. Okay. Now, I had a question during break. Do I have any others? Does anyone else have a question or a thought? Before I go to tell you what I remembered. Yes, Shelley. Uh-huh. I'm, I had a hard time articulating this. I've tried to do it very well. Um, I was sort of struggling with the idea of not not pushing somebody, right? You know, impinging on their priorities, and how that related um, uh, in a marriage concerning the child, because the the stakes are so much higher for the child because you feel like you are supposed to be the teacher. Oh, you mean how you relate? Oh, no, to, with children. Okay. You, you mean from the point of view of not impinging on their priorities, is that what right, you're saying? Yeah, on their priorities as well as, in a marital sense, respecting yeah. their priorities. Yeah. I, think, I think what she's specifically, when you're having differences about child, particular child-rearing episode. So are you talking, Shelley, about relating to your children or relating to your spouse about your Both. children? Both. <laughs> now, I don't have children, so I have to say this. Not, I don't... I don't <clears throat> I don't know it as much from experience, but I definitely know what it feels like to feel that something has to be done and somebody doesn't agree, and that and that you don't really feel that there's a choice. Um, Swamiji made a statement to me once, which was really important. He said, you know, truth doesn't need your emotion to be manifested in the world. He said, you know, truth, truth, is, truth exists without your emotional commitment to it. And he even said once that the more emotionally, and by emotions, I, I, we, make, we make a distinction in, in vocabulary between emotion and feeling. Um, and I just sort of assumed that. Feeling is, is, is that aspect of you which remains centered no matter how intense it becomes. Emotion is when that feeling pulls you off center and you no longer are acting from the wholeness of yourself, but you've become fragmented because you've become extreme in it. I mean, and this is arbitrary because English really doesn't make that distinction. Okay, but when you have emotion, generally speaking, you can't see things in proportion. You know, you begin to see, for example, your spouse as your enemy. You begin to imagine that only you as the mother really have this best interest of the child at heart and he just can't possibly. Otherwise, why would he think this way? which are not things that you would feel when you were centered. Um, you might, you, when you're centered, you might realize that 
I'm more in tune with this particular aspect of things than he is. You, mean, you could still see the same situation, but you wouldn't see it with the same sense of um, accusation and judgment, right? So what Swami was trying to say was, if something is true, people of goodwill will see that it's true. And, and even if you know something to be true, especially if you're dealing with a child and there's two of you, um, it's probably, I mean, maintaining the strength and harmony of the marriage is probably one of the most important things you can do for the child. And especially when um, the wife or husband makes it clear to the child that they don't have respect for the other one because they're stupid about this issue. You do much more harm to the child than whatever the issue is. You know, and especially if that becomes the consistent attitude, you know, that you do much more harm. And children are very, very intuitive and they pick it up. So, so you have to always go back to first principles on many levels, which is number one, uh, child two has their karma. Now, I'm not talking now about not taking responsibility. You know, parents have, the job of parents is an exceedingly unpleasant one for the most part. And I've observed that some parents get it and some don't. You know, the job of a parent is that you're there to just, you're there to love the child and be their friend, but you really, you have a responsibility to train them and civilize them. That's really what you're there for. And you just have to consistently, time after time, look out for their welfare, whether they want you to or not. Of course, it's self-evident that if you're not doing it in such a way that it wins them, you're not really accomplishing what you want either. And you have to recognize the enormous role that magnetism plays rather than words or even actions. So if your magnetism is uptight, hateful, and angry, frustrated and furious, um, you may be able to force the child to do something, but you're not really going to help them that much. But if your magnetism is just there, I know my sister is a very good mother to a very difficult son. And she was once wanting him to go home. She wanted him to behave in a certain way. And they were about to go from my parents' house back to her house. And she was beginning to say things to him like, you know, if you go home now, as I'm asking you to, if you cooperate with me now, you will be able to go home, open the door to our house, and do anything you want. If you continue in this way, when you go home, you're going to go straight to your room, and this is only going to happen. And he, because he's a young New York lawyer when he was five, um, <laughs> began to um, try to persuade her. And she was beginning to lose her patience, and she's just so sweetly, but with just adamant. She's a small woman, and just folded her arms, and she said, have I ever changed my mind when I speak to you like this? And he thought for a moment, and he said, no. <laughs> and she said, well, it's not about to be different now. But it was just, she was just perfectly calm, but it was just, I don't really care. This is what's happening. And the magnetism of it, though, was just exactly what it needed to be. And, you know, now that's that's not the only example, but yes, let's show. Well, you know, I can, I can see that with a younger child. Um, but, I, but I think what is becoming more complicated is when you're working with a teenager. Mm-hmm. And that <laughs> pushing, they're more likely to step forward and own it. And so it's it's more of a, the magnetism, I think, is even more important, but it's also just waiting. I 
and letting it go. Well, you have. Well, it's a lot the same as. It's really gross. You know, the stakes are higher when they're older. I mean, they're really disgusting at that age. Well, it's it. Um, I have to again say that I can give you general advice, but I can't really call it, call it to the focus because I haven't lived through it. But let me just say this, a few things that I do know. It still has a lot to do with magnetism. It has a lot to do with you yourself looking at it in a long rhythm, with you yourself choosing your battles very carefully, um, and using a lot more prayer than just coercion, and a lot more surrendering of your child into God's hands. I'll tell you a very interesting story between a friend of mine and her son. Very beautiful boy. I mean, she raised him pretty much by herself, a little single mom, you know, a little bit of involvement from the dad, but mostly herself. And he and he's a good child though, so it was, wasn't really like you know, it wasn't like what some people really have to face. But she had always done Did I tell you this last week? She always would pray for him a lot and she would do affirmations for him. You know, she, in prayer, she would she would say affirmations and visualize them. He got to be fourteen, he began, you know, really like really rebellious, really rebellious, and was just fight with her all the time about everything. So she backed off and backed off and backed off, but she was still saying those affirmations for him. Then one day she realized that she was still pushing on him, and so she started instead. She changed her prayer, you know, to Divine Mother, you sent him to me. He's always been your child. You better take care of him now. And when she, yeah, yeah, really. And when she stopped, when she stopped doing those affirmations, he stopped being so rebellious. It was like she, he still felt her trying to make him into something. And uh, so it, it was just like inside herself. And of course, it's it must be it must be I have to say exceedingly difficult to be detached. But nonetheless, these are not your children. You know, they're, they're people who come to stay with you. And they stay with you for a little while. I mean, be fair about it. How many of us are still living in our childhoods? You know? Like, you know, our parents are there, and they meant something to us, and we loved them, and so on. But long time ago, we stepped out of our childhood and became ourselves. You know? And yes, our childhood meant something to us, but we've had millions of incarnations And in all those incarnations, we had parents. And in all those incarnations, we lived at least a little while with our parents. But it's, you know, it's like this big compared to the momentum and the destiny that soul is going through. So you have to, whenever you're beginning to feel overexcited about this moment, you have to stand back and say, who am I kidding? Now, that is not an excuse to abdicate your responsibility, but it's definitely a way to calm yourself down. And, and also, sometimes you just have to look at it. You know, I have to look at not at what I feel I have to keep doing, but I have to look at what I'm trying to accomplish, which is what I'm trying to accomplish is to influence this person toward a certain behavior. And gosh, if this isn't working, maybe I should think about it, you know, instead of just continuing to hit my head against the wall. Now, that may require self-control, creativity, investigation, drawing other resources. I mean, many things may have to happen. But that's all better than just continuing to be hysterical in a useless way. I mean, this is when I was having that feud with David. It was like, this is not working. 
you know. So what am I really trying to do? Am I trying to have the satisfaction of being mad? Am I trying to have the the feeling that I can't give up, I have to keep trying up his mother? Or do I really want to influence this person? And if I really want to influence him, I have to stop thinking about my role in it. I have to start thinking about him or her and what's really going to happen. And if in my trying to do it, I'm getting divided from my spouse, then there is something wrong with this picture. Unless my spouse is really, you know, so unworthy of regard that I really know. I mean, which does happen, you know, that the father or the mother really is just too out of it and I have to take over. That does happen. I want to give credit, but I don't think that's what we're talking about. I know you both. So if, if what I'm doing is separating me from my spouse, there is something wrong with this picture. And just inherent, that's your chipmunk voice in my kind, you know. If we're really disagreeing, somewhere there's a mistake here. And just because he tells me I'm too emotional and too involved doesn't mean that he's wrong. <laughs> and just because he's told me that 7,000 times and sometimes he is wrong doesn't mean that he's always wrong. And just because she says to you, look, there's something really at stake here, and she's hysterical about it, doesn't mean that she's wrong. It means that there's something wrong with this picture and we both have to stand back. But, you know, we stand back, we pray, we ask Divine Mother, we pray. Here's a great technique. Pray to the superconscious of your own child. Pray to your child. Not only for them, but to them. Which is when you calm down and go into your own spirit, just pray to their soul and say, what are you trying to make happen here? You know, and I know we're all on the same side. You help me figure out what it is that I'm trying to do. And don't think you can just do that once and then it's fine. You know, that has to be like an everyday cycle. Because raising teenagers in this culture is pretty much a mission impossible. It's a very, very hard assignment. So you have to also accept that. But these children chose it. They chose to expose themselves to some of the most unbelievable influences that we can hardly stand. But it's natural to them. You know? That's what uh, Dr. Pfeiffer says, raising Ophelia. She's about teenage girls. Let me say one more thing, then I'll go on from this. She... uh, she was sort of she, she she was talking about a mother that came to her. She was in Omaha, Nebraska, and the problems she felt were so t- faced were so terrible she couldn't imagine what was going on in New York City. She said um, that this mother came to her talking about her daughter, and the mother had decided that she was going to have a real frank discussion with her child about sexuality, and the mother had sort of made the decision that she was really going to tell her daughter that. Uh, that, that she and her father, the daughter's father, had had sex before they'd gotten married. And it's like going to be a real, it's going to be like a real confession. So she went into her daughter's room to talk to her daughter. And they, she's sort of like her daughter has a TV in her room. She's watching MTV. There's a, a, a woman in a leather bikini. Right? Just sort of rubbing herself up against some guy you know, to this throbbing beat. And then there's all these other half-clad women, you know, gyrating all over the place. And it occurs to the mother that maybe her, she and her daughter are not quite in the same place about this. <laughs> because, you know, kids are just like, yeah. It's just a whole different world. And to us, it just looks so, I mean, us or some people, it's just so unbelievable what's going on with teenagers. This is my opinion. And so I, I just say, Jai Shiva. This is changing yugas and everything is getting torn to bits. This is, I used to be very upset about it. Now I say, Jai Shiva. <laughs> but, uh, 
But, uh, but it's not unnatural to them. They are teenagers. It is impossible. It's terribly grotesque. It's totally warping their minds. It's just awful. But it's their karma. Well, I think from a no. marriage standpoint, what's, what's tempting to fall into is we stop pushing against each other and we start looking at each other's junk on the kid. So the kid becomes a, a vehicle to still get at each other's faults and what we want change, what we see exactly. Oh, I see what you mean. You've given up on each other and now yes. you're trying to force the child. Yeah, that's probably very true. Um, well, all I can say is it's not a real good idea. <laughs> but you might have already known that. <laughs> but Shelley, you know what it comes back to? Self-control, 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 self-control. Everybody imagines that there's some kind of a relationship in which I don't have to exercise self-control. There is. It's called the relationships that end. It's called temporary relationships. Otherwise, life is about self-control. And when you finally actually just like really get that, it's not really as hard as you think because you're not fighting it all the time. You just realize, of course, I have to be disciplined and aware and I cannot just let myself run riot. Because if I let myself run riot, I get to do it all by myself. Which is probably what you don't want. You know, I mean, you alienate everybody eventually. Self-control. Thinking of other people's welfare, true maturity relating to realities other than my own. And, but then the, the reverse of that is, that's true spirituality, is to discipline the ego and relate from the soul. And the strange thing about it is once you stop thinking it's awful, it actually turns out to be marvelous. Because you really get happy. But you have to work at it. But once you, once you realize that the pleasure of living correctly is so much greater than the pain of living badly. And the effort required is nothing compared to the joy of doing it. But there's this, Yogananda describes it. He says, help me to understand that the ways of virtue, though, though appearing difficult and unpleasant at first, will in fact bring me great joy. And help me to remember that the ways of vice, though honey-covered as though they seem, are actually poison, in fact. You know? And, but you get that after a while. It gets so that, you, you know, you just do the wrong thing and it feels so bad, you just don't want to do it anymore. And everybody has that in certain areas. You know? In certain areas, you just cannot do the wrong thing. In other areas, you always do the wrong thing. But, but someday, and by wrong, I mean the least happiness producing. I'm not talking about sin. But you, but you realize that eventually you will realize that, you know, this emotional outburst in which I vent all my things like that, it won't feel good anymore. Because the um, consequences will be so in front of you, just as you start, you won't even start. And even the doing of it won't feel good. And so slowly by slowly, it's a matter of falling down and standing up, falling down and standing up, and just keep going, and it'll work out. Okay, I had an, is there another question? Otherwise I'll answer. And, um, I, w- I was asked during the break about this question of how you work from the head and the heart both. And that directly relates to what I forgot a little while ago. I read a very interesting article by Joseph Chilton Pierce, and he was reporting on the research of others, and this is something that's coming out all over the place, that the, the same gray matter that's in the brain is actually in the heart. 
and that it, and that there's an actual they're making the uh, uh, an actual and I'm not a scientist so I'm just going to repeat this like a you know like the way it feels to me they've actually figured out that the same way that the brain functions there's a the function in the heart that's just the same that we really actually think from our hearts even in a physiological sense now isn't that interesting uh, if you look up it the it's it's a I can't actually say. It's related to something called heart math. There's some kind of a, a website called heart math that you can look up. Heart, heart math. H-E-A-R-T-M-A-T-H. I haven't looked it up, but that's what I've been told. And uh, But the point, the point of it is that it's not really that different what goes on between the two parts of ourselves. And uh, someone was asking just like, how do you really become, because he talks about how you refer reason to the heart and you refer heart to the reason. And it's almost like I, like you can feel it whenever you're too much in your head. You know, can't you just feel it? You feel kind of squished? There's <laughs> just like this sense of, of being squished and everything else gets really dull and dry. When, when, you, when you want to make a decision or when you're in some kind of a conflict, um, just in the way that we meditate at the point between the eyebrows, you, you actually can also just put your attention in your heart and just sort of generate energy in the heart with, without... Um, it's like you keep your attention at the point between the eyebrows, but you feel the energy in the heart. That's what I'm trying to say. Because you don't really want to take your attention off the spiritual eye and put it in the heart, because once you get here, you start getting closer to the lower chakras and the energy can so easily get pulled into emotion. I mean that I'm saying that to a lot of you who who, know, who I've talked to a lot about this, but but the heart is a, a delicate spot because the energy from the heart can either rise or get pulled down. Okay, and if it gets pulled down by the down in this, I mean it gets more and more identified with ego, and more and more identified with you separately. Whereas if you keep your attention at the spiritual eye, this is the part of yourself that keeps you connected to the superconscious. So you don't really want to put your concentration in the heart because then you're too likely to get drawn away. You keep your concentration here, but you keep your awareness in the heart. And you, and then you hold up to the spiritual eye with a feeling in the heart, just what is it that you're asking to do? And and the, the it, it's, it's, it can be described as simple as that. But in, uh, and you just have to practice it. What does this feel like? You just ask your question. I know that sounds reasonable, but what does this really feel like? And at the same time, you say, I know this feels good, but is it reasonable? And, and Swamiji encourages us to go both ways. Because a lot of times, women or people who are very feely-oriented resist bringing things to a clear focus. They prefer the sort of vague feeling about things. And they get resentful when someone wants them to bring their, their feelings to a clear focus. But why not? If it's true, it can also be brought to a clear focus. And if you resist it, it's probably because it's not um, uh, on, on point enough. That doesn't mean you have to become super articulate. But, but you shouldn't resist someone else's desire to have you just sort of like, where does this come from? Because true intuition stands also the test of reason. It may be bigger than reason. It doesn't stand the test of cold reason, but it stands the test of calm reason. Because calm reason says, well, this makes sense. I can understand. I can see how that connects. But sometimes in order for the reasonable person to understand the feeling person, the reasonable person has to also get the feeling. 
You know, I know sometimes when Swamiji suggests things, um, sometimes he makes suggestions that we, for, for directions we should go or things that we should do that I just don't quite get because I can't quite capture the reasons for it. And uh, I used to always just sort of struggle with it, <laughs> you know, sort of fight it with words. And then at a certain point I realized instead of trying to make it clear with my mind like this, I would just accept what he said in my heart. And by that, what I meant by that was, I would not resist it. I would just take it in. That's what. You, that's that's not so mysterious. You just take it in. Oh, that's an interesting idea. And then often when I take it into my heart, it would be like, ah, oh, I would get it. I would catch it, like on an intuitive level. Oh, I see what he's trying to say. And then all of a sudden, my heart would communicate to my mind. And then I'd have all the reasons at the same time. But until I relaxed enough, until I relaxed enough and just took it in, when I was just trying to understand it, I couldn't understand it until I let my heart have it also. And it's part of like trying so hard to understand, often you're just so busy that you don't allow yourself to feel it. And then you make an intuitive leap, that's the only word for it, that then becomes a reason and you get it. Does that make sense? Now, that's not complicated. It's not always easy, but it's not complicated. And it's perfect in the male-female relationship when the person you love the most in the world or that you're closest to in the moment is trying to get something across to you, you need to be in both places because that's what you're trying to do with each other is to be in both places. So whichever side of it you're resisting, just try to be in both places and let the energy come in. And you'll suddenly find that they'll link up with each other all of a sudden. And when they link up with each other, then you're both male and female, and whoever you're relating to, you can relate to better, because you've got you've got whatever the compliment is. Do you see? Does that make sense? All right. That's my whole story for tonight. Is there anything else? All right. Thank you. Good night. And we have whatever third class. We're reading two more chapters next week, six and seven. Okay.